Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This week's episode is called COVID-19 and Gendered Violence with Ashley Whedon. Ashley is an award-winning rural innovator and community capacity builder. She's currently pursuing her PhD in rural studies at the University of Guelph. Her work is fundamentally concerned with issues of equity, inclusion, and innovation. In this episode, Ashley talks about the many ways that the pandemic is disproportionately impacting women. She discusses economic and social challenges and how these challenges are amplified for women living rurally. She also talks about the various care roles that women have taken on during the pandemic and the importance of having feminist leaders, especially at this time. It was so great to hear from Ashley. She was actually the guest speaker at our agency's AGM in the spring, so it was awesome to hear from her again. Before we get started, I want to note that this episode was recorded in early summer 2020 during the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic in Ontario. This episode was also recorded virtually for safety reasons. Hello again. Uh, Thanks for joining me today. So Ashley, can you start by telling me a little bit about yourself and sharing a little bit about yourself for everyone listening here? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. And it's uh, it's great. Always a good time to get to chat with you guys and and talk about some of the issues that we're planning to talk about today. So um, my name is Ashley Whedon. I'm currently a PhD candidate at the University of Guelph, where my work is focused mostly on uh, rural development, rural policy, and specifically on uh, place and rural innovation. So what makes uh, what happens, say, in uh, in Elmira different than what happens in Nelson, BC versus what happens in Birds Cove, Nova Scotia, or sorry, Newfoundland, um, and, and why uh, all of these places have unique qualities. And so I'm really interested in, in the fact that, you know, just as we assume that Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver are all different, um, rural places are just like that too, right? They're, they're totally different, but we tend to assume they're all the same. So my work really digs into what makes uh, a rural place a specific place and, and what ties people to that. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to hear from you again. I know um, a few weeks ago I got to hear from you at our annual general meeting. You were the speaker. So I always love hearing from you and talking to you. So I'm excited. This is part two to that. Uh, yeah, it's too bad for everyone listening who didn't hear part one, but <laughs> we'll catch you up. <laughs> it's all good. We just, yeah, we had a test run a couple of weeks ago and now you get to see the real thing. You get to see the, the slightly more or less filtered version. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's normal. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, yeah, as you mentioned already, today we're going to talk a bit about the impact of COVID-19 on women and how this can lead to gendered violence, uh, especially for those living in rural areas. So can you kind of start by giving us a brief overview of how COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting women? Sure. So 
this is this is often uh, an interesting part of the discussion when we talk about major shocks that happen in our world, whether um, uh, they're economic, health related, um, socially related, um, and COVID nineteen is this really um, fascinating and difficult confluence of social, economic, health, um, all of the pieces that make up our lives. Because you know, health isn't separated from our economic opportunities and vice versa, and it's also having all these huge ripple effects on how we're able to connect with each other, how we're able to work. And the traditional means of which we kind of recover from economic shocks is by putting people to work and into projects. Whereas when it's a virus and when we're in positions that require us to stay apart, that has uh, much larger implications in terms of how we navigate the current um, crisis and how we look forward. Uh, and and often we tend to frame these things through, you know, the loss in, in physical jobs that we see, right? So we see manufacturing can't happen or oil and gas is hit. And certainly these industries have been hit. But the thing that's really clear right now in, in what we're facing and related to COVID-19 and, and what many are calling, you know, kind of the looming recession, if not a depression, um, is that we're calling it a she-session. And I, I mean, we can talk a little bit about like whether, <laughs> whether or not we like that term, um, but undeniably COVID-19 is affecting um, the social, economic, uh, and, and community-based lives of women in every way and in unequal ways. So we have a, a disease, we have a virus that requires us to, to isolate more, um, which will put women in positions uh, that are far more vulnerable. Um, we're seeing that rates of domestic violence were anticipated to go up and we are seeing evidence of um, of gender-based violence and gender-based uh, vulnerabilities increase. Um, over 50% of Canada's COVID-19 um, cases and deaths are women, um, making us actually, I think, one of the exceptions among Western nations where the, preva the prevailing trend is mostly men. So in Canada, we're actually seeing the inverse of that. We're also seeing um, a lot of risks related to that, which is that, you know, Canadian women live longer than men. Many are in high-risk jobs like long-term care, education, and other care work positions, um, service, retail, all of the positions that we've deemed essential to still keep going and help our community you know, function through this crisis. Overwhelmingly, that's where women live and work. And in rural areas, this you know, kind of expands doubly so. So um, I think there's sometimes a bit of a myth that rural communities are incredibly well connected and everybody's supported and everybody wants, you know, is one big happy family. And, and while that might be the case in, in some places and it might, you know, be some of the underlying conditions in some contexts, we also know that rural, uh, rural Canadians face poor health outcomes as, as in total in general because of access to resources, access to primary care. We also know that isolation is a big issue in rural communities across all walks, walks of life. So whether you're, you know, a teenager in your 30s or in your senior years, um, uh, mental health uh, issues related to isolation tend to be much more significant in rural areas because we're isolated. And then you have this double-edged sword, right? Um, you are further away from accessing supports that might help you get out of those situations. And particularly when we're talking about gender-based violence or any of the economic conditions and social conditions that um, sort of create indicators or, or higher risk factors towards gender-based violence. Um, you're further away from those supports. And even if you wanted to access them, there is that fear of, while everybody might not be one big happy family, everybody certainly knows your business. Um, and so 
uh, some of the, the more social factors around what prevents women from accessing care seem to be deeper in rural areas. So we have this kind of massive um, overlaying huge crises in a different variety of ways that, that seem to layer not only interpersonal individual kind of violence against women or gender-based violence, but also this sort of broader, what I would call, you know, institutional or power-based violence, which is um, the rapid loss of economic opportunity and economic agency, the rapid loss of social connections and the things that keep us afloat mentally and emotionally with each other and how we take care of each other. And then this increased burden of care and risk. So not only have I lost the majority of the things that help me um, make it through my day-to-day -day life in a social and economic way, if, if I'm in these situations, if I'm a woman, I'm also now bearing the responsibility for taking care of children or seniors um, in my life, as well as, you know, we know women do the bulk of community care, whether that's taking care of colleagues and friends and checking on, you know, vulnerable people in their networks. So we're seeing this hugely disproportionate effect on women. Um, and I would add, you know, that I think we are we are at real risk of not actually dealing with these these questions. You know, when we're talking about from mid-February to mid-March alone, and I'm just looking at new data right now and some other work that I'm doing, more than 60% of the jobs lost in Canada were experienced by women. So that's going to have huge ripple effects in every aspect of women's lives from here on out. Um, and it's not just going to be immediate, it's going to be long-term. And then when we talk about the income supports, you know, like the Canadian emergency response benefit or those kinds of things, um, overwhelmingly, we really didn't see a lot of women kind of leave the labor force for those reasons. Um, so they're, you know, still working, uh, not accessing the emergency supports that were there to help them access some relief and still increasing their burden of care over and over again. So I think that we have a bit of a perfect storm when it comes to how this effect is going to roll out for women and then an even more dangerous uh, situation when it comes to rural communities um, simply because we on a broader level have actively de-invested in rural development over the last several decades so the situation is even more precarious there and it's a it's a bit of a doom and gloom situation but it is quite serious you know there's, it's um, something that's increasingly uh, drawing some attention in the media and we have some wonderful um, women academic uh, folks across Canada from uh, that are looking at these issues um, and yet we're really seeing a lack of courage and a lack of innovation and leadership at, across all orders of government to actually deal with these things um, and you know when you have uh, Canada's premiers being unable to admit that systemic racism is a thing that exists it gives you a bit of a lack of hope that they're going to be able to wrap their heads around the gendered and and other uh, sort of different impacts that COVID-19 and, and the fallout from COVID-19 will have for different kinds of people. Thank you. Yeah, I know. And it's like you mentioned, there's just so many different layers, I think. And I think we don't always think about how complicated it is and how there are so many layers. It's the economic, it's 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 so many things. It's social, it's your interpersonal relationships. It's It's a lot of things going on right now. And I know on our end, uh, women's crisis services, it can be difficult too, because as you mentioned, women are experiencing increased rates of domestic violence right now. And all those things that you just mentioned, I think they compound and they put people at a higher risk for experiencing this. Because if you don't have 
your job to rely on your finances, you might be more likely to rely on your partner. And if unfortunately you're in an abusive relationship, that could lead to some financial abuse. There's just, there's a lot at play there. Um, and it, yeah. I think it's just a really complicated time for women. Well, and then, and then you add in terms of the, the weight that we're giving to relief for women, uh, specifically for women is, um, I mean, uh, federally, you know, uh, I think in sort of in May there was an, an earlier there's been 50 million announced for services to support women um, and children and victims of, of assault and, and sort of gender-based and domestic violence and we've had uh, you know 15 million uh, announced in terms of helping female business owners through the pandemic but we have to put this in context of a more than 280 billion dollar overall COVID relief package and say that that's just kind of a drop in the in the bucket, right? When we're looking at you know, what sixty five million in the context of two hundred and eighty billion, um, the investments that are being made in oil and gas, in manufacturing, in uh, uh, supporting capital, people that own you know kind of physical capital uh, that overwhelmingly tend to be to be men, um, it, we have this uneven consequence, right? And then this notion of of these are just measures to help us get through it, right? Get through this immediate crisis. And I would argue that we're, although it feels nice here in Canada and certainly in context to our neighbors to the South, we, we have a lot to be kind of proud of in terms of how we've been handling COVID-19. Um, but we're not out of the woods, right? Like this is, we're still very much in the eye of this storm um, and it, things are very precarious. And definitely here in Ontario where we're kind of hovering in that just under 200 or around 200 cases every day, um, that's a bit of a tinderbox. It won't take very much for that to flare back up. And as we go back inside more in the fall, the health risks around the virus itself, I think we can anticipate that getting up, as well as all the social and economic consequences, exactly as you're saying. I'm relying more on my, on my spouse. I'm not able to even get outside, which we know is safer to see people outside than it is inside. So I'm not leaving my home even to socially distance visit someone where I might be able to say something. And so this is where we see initiatives like the the closed fist and thumb um, uh, uh, innovation coming from leaders in the women's crisis services uh, sector around trying to find tools to help women reach out in ways that are far more difficult when someone's always around, when you can't actually get away from those things. And then we also have to talk about what happens when we finally do, when we finally do get to, to kind of breathe a bit more and get to the other side of this from its immediate threat is, um, if we don't have a commitment to how we're going to safely take care of children, and let's not forget education is a basic human right, right? So we, we've been treating education as if it's just sort of a thing that we'll all muddle through. And a quality education is actually something that all children are entitled to. All people are entitled to their education. Um, and without a strategy for meaningfully doing that, we're now forcing often women into the gender roles that I think we like to think we're all past, but really that do come flying to the forefront when we're in a situation of stress, which is whose job is more important, whose income, you know, pays the bills, what happens uh, around those things. And then, you know, how do you value women's participation that when we're talking about unpaid labor? Uh, so all of these things add up to not just what's happening right now, exactly saying the immediate threat and, you know, the stress of, being in a high high threat situation all of the time, which we know does not bring out everyone's best behavior. Um, so we have this added stress now of people are always at home. They're always under this this perceived set of threat. So it's all kind of kicking off into, into that. I think it would take very little to throw some gasoline on this fire and 
we likely won't know the full extent of the costs of this until much, much later, um, but it'll be too late to do anything about it then. So um, this becomes part of the challenge when we talk about policy and programming is, is how do you do evidence-based policymaking when, when we've never had the evidence before, except we do have evidence, right? We do have the work that, that you guys do at the Women's Crisis Services, Waterloo Region, the work that um, other organizations like yourselves do across the country. Um, we know what's likely to happen and what is happening in terms of gender-based violence. And we also know all these other things in terms of the economic and social costs around this. But it's whoever's speaking the loudest, right? It's whoever's getting the most attention. And if you're so cons consumed with trying to make sure that your kids and your parents are taken care of and aren't under uh, unnecessary psychological or physical health threats, and you yourself are trying to worry about how you're going to pay your mortgage or your rent, and also dealing with a volatile spouse or partner, um, how are you going to make noise to advocate for yourself? How are you going to be heard? I think that's something that really worries me is that it, we don't have the time to do that, right? Women that are in those situations, it, who, who, can, who can be heard when you're just trying to get through day to day? Um, so that's where it becomes really, really important to have these kinds of conversations. Not, I don't think, not to speak on behalf of people, because I hate that phrase, you know, like, let's speak on behalf of those who can't be heard. Well, there's a reason we can't hear them is because we're not letting them talk. Um, and we should let people use their own voices and agency. But we do have to make sure we're creating opportunities to tell these stories in really compelling and serious ways that they are dangerous, right? They're dangerous and dangerous, not just for individual women, but for society as a whole. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I something we were talking about earlier that I think relates to this is getting more women in leadership roles. And as you said, it's it's not, you know, it's a great time. People are worried about so many other things. It's it's hard to balance all your own stuff you got going on and then, you know, make a shift at the same time. So it's it's a strange balancing act. But I'm, I'm kind of wondering your thoughts and uh, on this a little bit more and if you could share what are the barriers to getting women into leadership roles? And, and also, why do we need women in these leadership roles? All right, so we, we, we can start with even like the most very, the basic kind of tendency around why it's important is, well, women make up half or more than half of the population. And so um, people who are making decisions on our behalf should kind of have some insight into our experience. Um, and I think that, you know, if you're missing more than half of, of a representative part of your demographic at decision-making table, something's wrong. Um, and, you know, we're seeing it through um, a wide variety of things, not just COVID-19 and not just, you know, social and economic policy. Um, you know, we're seeing it through things like the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the incredible leadership of, of Black women in, those, in, in that movement across the world, as well as um, the... Uh, I don't know more and missing and murdered indigenous women uh, leadership uh, around the advocacy there almost entirely led by young indigenous women um, just just absolutely mind-blowing the work that they're doing um, and what we're seeing when when these women come to the table is um, because of those experiences more of an openness to tackling really difficult conversations about these experiences and the importance of tackling those things so rather than simply focusing on, you know, social supports here, economic supports here, relief for this sector here, we see in these movements a, a commitment to a holistic approach that considers not just the role of individual women in our wider social and economic systems, but the role of community care, mutual aid, 
um, a less emphasis on an individualistic society and more on the idea that my survival is interwoven with your survival, right? We are interdependent. Um, and the, the sense of community connected this, even when we disagree, even when there's conflict, even when we have um, differing thoughts about those things, this recognition that you need to have those voices at the table and we also need to be looking at those things. So we have um, depressing numbers, quite frankly, for, for a country like Canada in terms of women's representation. Ontario in our legislature is pretty good. We're at about 40% in terms of seats held by women in, in the provincial legislature. Nationally, we're just under 30%. Um, and we have only one woman that sits as a first minister for a provincial government across the country. And, um, and I said it, you know, a few minutes ago, but I'll say it again, it bears repeating. When you look at the picture of the premiers and leaders across the country, when they sat down to talk about um, the importance of kind of this reignition of the Black Lives Matter movement, they couldn't agree that systemic racism is real. Like, I, that's that's just kind of like you know saying well we can't we can't agree that the sky is blue you know because it it looks kind of gray where i'm sitting right like so i think that 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 in and of itself tells us a lot about what we need to know around the kind of people that are making decisions on our behalf when we get into more kind of concrete uh kind of i call it like policy wonky kind of decisions right like the real nerdy stuff around this we can look to, to areas that are kind of doubling down on the stuff we know we shouldn't do which is happening here in Canada right now. So we can look at what's happening in Alberta. And, you know, the government of Alberta is sort of doubling down on all of the things that we've proven over several generations don't actually help us get out of recessions, don't actually help us ad address social and economic um, shocks by going into extreme austerity, by doubling down on investments and assumptions based on industry that no longer exists. And so I'm not saying that women would, would do better just because they're women, but I'm saying having different voices and experiences around the decision-making table tends to help us get out of that kind of blinded look at the only way of tackling something. Um, we also tend to see this interesting shift around, um, I think it's happening, you know, kind of around the world. Uh, there's an academic uh, uh, who called it um, the revenge of places that don't matter. Right. So when we see this swing towards exactly what I'm talking about, Alberta and kind of more populist governments and um, sort of this swing very far to the right uh, tends to happen around um, these notions where you do have people that all kind of look, feel and have had the same experiences all of a sudden being confronted with uh, a different reality that doesn't match with what they thought they were going to get. And so when you have, you know, kind of these shocks to say, well, I want to be able to, you know, in 2008, 2009, we saw the housing crash. We saw, you know, the massive crash of, of industry and manufacturing. Um, and we had a lot of primarily men, primarily white men, uh, all of a sudden confronted with the reality that the, the things they thought they were promised and entitled to just by virtue of who they are no longer existed. Um, and, and I don't think it's, it's just women that, that do this. And I think that it, there's a wide variety of this. So I don't want I'm not reducing any of this to an essentialist notion of gender, but I think for people that, you know, women and people of color and black people and indigenous people who have always had to fight really, really hard to get a seat at the table. Um, you know, this notion for, for people that haven't maybe that equality can feel kind of like oppression. Um, because now all of a sudden things are not kind of a given. 
Um, so my thoughts there is that if you have different people at the decision-making table and you have kind of different ways of looking at these things, we're all better off, right? An anti-racist society is good for everybody. And no one's saying to men, you should give up, you know, you need to give up your seat of privilege and power and say, well, everyone should have that, right? Everyone should have those things. And how much better off would we be in terms of tackling these things? And we're seeing in countries where women are in positions of leadership that uh, they're navigating the COVID-19 crisis seemingly better than other places. And arguably that's not because they're women, but because the societies that have elected them value different things and not only value those, not only say they value those things, but they're putting them into practice by saying, okay, we want a government committed to community supports, to creating equitable, just economic systems, to that prioritize people's well-being and health over profits, that find ways for us all to do well by doing well together, right? That, that you know, this isn't just sort of the, this isn't like, you know, kind of let's all, I, I get accused of being kind of a pingo a lot, but, you know, this isn't just kind of everyone should wear a jumpsuit and, and get the same allotment of bread. This is how do we all win? And even the language around getting ahead, who gets ahead, and we talk about that in rural areas, you know, how do rural communities get ahead? How do women get ahead? And I was, well, it's not even get ahead. It's like, how do we, how do we get a position to begin with? Um, so I think all of these things layer on top of each other and we can trace it right back to the fact that if, if you're not at a, if you're not at the decision-making table, someone else is making those decisions for you. And if they don't have your experiences or are interested in understanding your experiences, then, then you're not going to be heard, seen, valued. And the things that are important to you won't be. And so we're seeing the rollout of that. We're seeing the impacts. And I think, unfortunately, if we don't do something really in short order, um, it's going to get worse before it gets any better. And it'll be worse for quite a long time. Yeah, I understand that. And, and I think you talked about the importance of having everyone's voices be heard and especially bringing, bringing women's voices to light a little bit more. And I'm also wondering what you think about um, hearing from feminists more and having feminist leaders and, and not just women leaders, but feminist leaders. Yeah. So I think, you know, like, what is it? This uh, old kind of attitude, you know, feminism is just the notion that we're all equal, right? Like, so um, I was listening to this great, um, I'm a big fan of, uh, well, I've, I'm creeping towards my mid thirties and now I like podcasts, right? You know, I railed, railed against talk radio as a kid. And now, now I listen to a bunch of just pure talk radio all the time. One of my favorites is actually Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard, which is, uh, I mean, when you track back all these intelligent conversations to the guy that played Frito in an idiocracy, it's always a little bit of a mind bend, but um, he's hosted some really, really great conversations, particularly around exactly what you're talking about. And, and one of the interesting questions that he raised was, you know, that uh, this tension that we have a movement for women's equality, and it's got fem, it's got feminine in the word, right? Feminist. And it's very powerful. And I think a lot of feminist men, even if they are, in action and in deed and in the way they operate in the world are really, really shy around using the word feminist. And I think some of that is because it may, they don't see, for some strange reason, don't see themselves in the word. And that all has to do with just feminism, right? Like it's got feminine in it. And Dax raised this comment around, it's too bad that there wasn't a term around that, you know, and because we have men right, men's right activists and they tend to be people that most of us don't really want to associate, at least people that I enjoy spending time with. But we have to kind of pay attention to that, right? That that there's a whole group of people that are not that feel somehow disconnected for whatever reason and i don't think we owe it to to that segment to be um 
overly walking on eggshells, but we have to pay attention to the things that create that and to make sure that we're finding ways to bring those people along to say, look, this is good for you too, right? Like this is racism hurts all of us. Sexism hurts all of us. Classism hurts everybody. Um, and so the, the movement around sort of this idea around Kimberly Crenshaw that come up with intersectional uh, feminism, which moves on to, you know, your feminism isn't worth anything if you're using it to still oppress people on other measures. So you can be a feminist and still be what I call, you know, white lady feminism, right? Which is just like, it's, it's good for me, but you know, not if you're, you look different than me or you come from a different socioeconomic class and, you know, well, uh, we're not quite all the way there. So it's really important that we have these measures, but going back to Dax's point, you know, the conversation then became around uh, how do we talk about masculinity as part of that as well. And so I don't, you know, that's not, you know, feminism can be part of your masculinity. And so we can have feminist leaders who are men and we can have uh, anti-feminist leaders who are women. And the importance of having people that are able to have those difficult conversations around what their personal politics means for their broader politics and how the way they show up in the world, how that impacts things becomes huge because I long maintain that you can be an old white dude in a suit without actually being an old white dude in a suit, right? It, it all depends on how you are encultured into the world around you. And so if you grow up with role models that say there's a particular way of being in the world and this is how you fit into it, um, then that becomes dangerous. And I know I've experienced a lot of that myself. Some of the stuff that I've written that has been, you know, incredibly popular has been around this idea around how do you show up authentically. And feminism allows us that, right? It gives us this notion that when, when kids draw a leader, it's not just, you know, a guy with a briefcase, it can be a broad variety of things. But unless you're explicitly claiming that position and then following it up with action, it can be disingenuous. So we're seeing that play out a little bit right now, as much as our current federal government is, is promoting themselves as a feminist government and has introduced a lot of gender-based plus analysis and all of these kinds of things. Even going back to that point I mentioned earlier, you know, 65 million or 65 billion in the context of 280 billion dollars of relief. Is this really a feminist government? Is this really a feminist orientation if those gender based analysis aren't at the heart of all of the decisions we're making? And so we need to have those lenses in play because it's not just about quantity of women, but about the quality of their experience and how they're showing up in the workplace. So yes, we can have lots more women participating, but if they're all only in minimum wage jobs in the service sector, is that really what we're aiming for? Or if women are considered expendable from the labor force, or they're considered a nice to have in terms of the legislature, you know, that's not feminist government. And I would really love to get to a point where we don't comment on that, right? Where it's not remarkable. And I, I'm, I'm kind of beyond patting people on, on the back for electing women. Like, I'm just like, well, just do it. Like, this, is, this isn't a thing you should be congratulated for. Much like being anti-racist is not a thing you should be congratulated for. It's like, good for you. You're doing the work. You don't get a gold star for that. Yeah. Um, so I think all of the stuff around the importance of having feminists in, in positions of power mean that it goes beyond reducing people to just, you know, their gender representation and more around what do you do with those experiences and how do you make sure that the decisions you're making consider the experiences of people who don't look or have the same background as you and that you're not going to actively do harm with your policies based on the assumptions that you're making about those experiences. So actively feminist government includes men and includes women and means a deeper interrogation of when I take this action, does it have 
um, unintended consequences for uh, who will be affected by it, who benefits, and who gets power and who doesn't by virtue of these decisions. So as we're moving forward, I, I would love more and more for the movement around women's empowerment. You know, I'm, I'm kind of done with women's empowerment. Let's, like, women, let's hire women, pay women, like, you know, girl, get your money kind of thing, right? Like, go get paid. Um, and, uh, you know, I want to move beyond that to more, okay, what are you going to do with the position of power that you have? You know, are you doing the things you say rather than just kind of, we've got X number of women in these positions. Great. What are they doing? You know, like what, what do you have them doing and what kind of decisions are they making and how are they affecting other people? Because without that, it's just, you know, we're just going to re- re- recreate the same things. And personally, I, I mean, I'm sure you have as well. I'm sure lots of people have had that where this feeling of, um, you know, there's that was a quote around, you know, if, if no one will give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And, and I hate that too, right? Which is just like kind of saying, oh, I have to be off to the side. Or if, um, why do we have to pull up to the same table as it is? Let's, you know, I said this in the keynote, you know, like, let's flip that table and do something different. Because just putting more women or more people of color into systems that are inherently sexist, inherently classist, inherently racist, is just going to produce the same outcomes and burn out those people, right? We're just going to chew them up and spit them out. So those individual actions, those individual people in positions of power um, won't actually accomplish what we, what we want to accomplish unless we're empowering them to take a particular ideological stance, which is based in sort of feminism and equality and justice to dismantle the structural and systemic issues that recreate all of these patterns over and over. Yeah. Oh, I think so too. I like it. Flip the table. Let's <laughs> flip the it. table. <laughs> yeah. Flip it up. Go build something better. That's my deal. Yeah. This has got to be different. <laughs> exactly. So when we're talking about all this, like you've given us some great ideas to think on and how we can move forward. But one more thing, like this, this podcast and this project, the She Is Your Neighbor project, it's all about how can we be better neighbors? And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Like, how can the general public, what can we do? How can we be better neighbors to each other, to women? How can we move this forward? Yeah. So I think, you know, the first thing, it goes back to you know, that point around moving beyond empowerment and into taking action, right? So I think that to some extent, we have to move beyond uh, this, this notion of niceness, right? That, and I would rather... I would rather people be fundamentally kind and just than just nice um, because niceness keeps us small, right? So this idea of like, I have to be, you know, pleasant and likable and all these kinds of things. And you can be a likable person and also be deeply committed to, to kind of shift disturbing is what we call, you know, kind of creating change. Um, and this idea of being neighborly is really about paying attention, right? I think about my own, I think about my own upbringing. This is kind of that rural background is, you know, uh, the best neighborhood watch in the world is um, is a nosy farm neighbor, right? Because they, they know exactly what's going on everywhere all the time. And my best media scanner ever in the world when I was working in communications was my mom because she just knew everything that was going on. And so that basis of curiosity and paying attention to what's going on is really important. And so this, this, this tracks at the individual level. So when we're talking about women that um, you feel maybe at greater risk for a variety of reasons, not just of violence, but around um, abuse of all forms, was emotional, financial, physical, um, all of those aspects is paying attention and noticing those things and then doing something with it, right? So being aware that we have the capacity and the great power as individuals to intervene and, and we're actually morally obligated to do so. Um, 
it doesn't do anybody any good to just let that lie. And that starts with, you know, understanding that the same continuum that prevents women from accessing positions of power is the same as the one that says, you know, all the rape jokes on Family Guy are funny. And so calling that out when you see that and then voting with not only your actual physical vote in democratic elections, but your wallet and your voice and making sure that you're not supporting businesses that are fundamentally sexist in their labor practices or in their procurement practices with your money as much as possible um, or with your uh, support in terms of who you amplify and whose voices are going on and who you ask questions about. So we have, we have this, we have far more power than, than we want to believe, you know, what we do individually and how we participate in the systems around us has consequences for people we'll never meet. So this being a neighbor thing and she is your neighbor. And, and I think that's such a wonderful humanizing way to look at this, right? Is, is that this, my behavior and my connection to people extends beyond kind of my immediate family to people that are in kind of a softer social circle, but they're people, right? It's recognizing that this person is a whole human being into and of themselves, just the way that I am. And if I wouldn't wish something on myself, you know, if I wouldn't wish for the conditions that that, that that person is experiencing or the context or the situation that they're in, if I wouldn't want that for me, how am I actively working to make sure that doesn't happen to somebody else? How am I investigating my complicitness in the systems that actually do create those things? And that might look a little like questioning who you buy things from, questioning who you elect, holding people accountable throughout the election cycle. You know, in rural communities, this can be a little bit more difficult, right? So there are whole chunks of Canada where actually, you know, telling people not to buy from Amazon is, is tantamount to saying, you know, don't, you can't get any of the essential goods that you need to, to live your day-to-day -day life. You know, we're looking at sort of the far north, um, lots of rural communities where, and particularly when, you know, you're trying to set, you need to self-isolate for a variety of reasons. So just saying, you know, we'll buy local, you know, don't buy from these things is not quite, you know, all the way there. We need to look at the conditions that mean that that creates it. So I think keeping an eye on all of those things and then following that through kind of every day, just taking that moment to pause and say, okay, how am I contributing to the community through whatever way and it might not be through actively showing up at a march you know the women's march or whatever black lives matter march or whatever but am i showing up at the voting booth am i making sure that there's someone on a ticket am i asking women to run for office am i looking at someone saying i want you to you know i want to follow your lead and i'm going to do it all of those things will mean that we can treat each other as like kind of global neighbors right like she is your neighbor he is your neighbor these these people are in our community whether they're on our street in our towns or in, in our country. And so moving that scope to allow for who's included in that conversation helps us move forward into this sort of more community-based uh, notions of how we're gonna build our future together. Oh yeah, I think so too. And I, I think you just gave some great examples of what people can do. Cause I think we get stuck sometimes. What can I do? How do I make a difference? It's such a big looming problem, but those are some tangible things you can do. And I think that's really helpful. So thank you so much for coming on today, Ashley. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.